May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. So today is Trinity Sunday, which for most preachers is either one of the best Sundays in the year or one of the worst Sundays in the year. It's the Sunday where we get to talk about and to take note of the doctrine of the Trinity, which is a central piece of being a Christian. It's what marks us out from uh, being a Jew or a, or a Muslim. The Trinity, the triune God. God is three and God is one. Which of course absolutely makes no sense whatsoever. And it arose because of the doctrine of the Incarnation, that Jesus is fully human and fully divine, both at the same time, which also makes absolutely no sense. It's a pretty difficult concept to get our heads around, and so I'm sure some of you are wondering, why do we even bother? It's so hard and difficult. What difference does it make? Surely we could just push it to one side and get on with life. Well, you wouldn't be alone in thinking that. Throughout the centuries, we as Christians have struggled deeply with this concept of the Trinity. How do we hold the concept of God is one and Jesus is fully human and fully divine together? The century where a lot of this was hammered out was the 300s, a century of turmoil and brutal debate, which was fundamentally about the nature of God the Son, who is Jesus. Well, in fact, there were a whole group of them who said that Jesus wasn't God, wasn't human. So those of you who've read um, the other one, not Angels and Demons, the other book, uh, it was all very famous and kind of seemed to say that uh, there was a huge... The Da Vinci Code. That's it. It was in my head till about three seconds ago and then it fell out at the crucial moment. Uh, which seemed to suggest that the whole debate was about whether Jesus was human or divine. The debate was never about whether Jesus was human. No one said that Jesus was human. But one group said he was human and divine, and the other one, other group said that Jesus was the first and greatest of all created beings. Not human, but the first and greatest of all created beings. And so the debate raged for almost all the 300s. And out of that came what we now understand to be the doctrine of the Trinity. Out of that came the two creeds that we use on Sundays, the Apostles' Creed, which was written at the Council of Nicaea, and the Nicene Creed, which was affirmed later on as a reaffirmation of the faith of the Council, declared at the Council of Nicaea, and a number of other creeds that have since been rejected, because that's when the other side was winning. So, in a nutshell, what, what do we believe well, we believe that Jesus the Son is both fully human and fully divine. One person with two natures. And we also believe that God is three in one. Three persons with one nature. So to tease that out, that means that we believe that God is one. 
The Bible is clear about that, and we hold that in common with our brothers and sisters in Islam and Judaism. But unlike them, we also say that God is three. And we hold all of that together with the understanding that God is three persons with one nature or one essence. So what on earth does that mean? Well, the first thing to note is that it doesn't mean that God comes to us in three different ways. So we often talk about the Trinity as like water, ice and steam and water. Well, that's actually called modalism, and that was rejected in the 200s. So we don't believe that God comes to us in three different ways. We understand that God is three persons. Why? Well... Because of Scripture, really, and because of the Gospel we've just heard, John's Gospel. So in John's Gospel in particular, Jesus, talks, uh, Jesus is talked about as being sent by the Father, which implies two persons. You can't be sent by yourself. You are sent by another. So Jesus is sent by the Father. And in John's Gospel, Jesus returns to the Father doesn't return to himself, but returns to the Father. And all four Gospels have God the Father saying about the Son, This is my beloved Son, either at the baptism or the transfiguration. And in Luke and John and in Acts, they talk about the Spirit proceeding from the Father. So on each of these we can see that there's not just God appearing to us in different modes, but actually three persons. So how do we understand that term person? Well, not as we would normally understand it in everyday life. So Bonnie and I and Peter are three different persons. And I think this is where we often get tripped up when we talk about the Trinity. We end up talking about three gods because we understand persons as Bonnie and Peter and I are three different persons. But that's not how it's understood in terms of the Trinity. The word person here, and it was debated, hotly debated. There are a whole group that would not agree to the word person because, it, because the word persona in Greek referred to the masks that players on the stage used. So it smacked of modalism. It was once again God appearing to us with three guises, but all still the one God. So there was a whole group that said, no, we will not sign this creed. And they had to thrash it out. So what does the word person mean? Well, it means I. Three separate eyes. So, to use the traditional language. The Father refers to himself as I, and to the Son and to the Spirit as you. And the Son refers to himself as I, and to the Father and to the Spirit as you. And the Spirit refers to herself as I, and to the Father and to the Son as you. So the word person here is really another word for I. Each person in the Trinity has the, the ability for distinctive thought and initiative and compassion, and love, and action. 
Which is kind of important because sometimes people say that the Holy Spirit is a force at work doing the will of God. But actually the Holy Spirit is not a force. It is an I, which refers to herself as I. So, three gods. Well, if you listen to some Christians, yes, three gods. But we hold on to the one God. And so, in the 300s, the theologians talked about three persons, but one indivisible essence. Three eyes with one indivisible essence. And not three chunks of a pie which all together make up God, but actually each person being God in God's fullness. That's what the individual, indivisible essence is all about. So, God is one. God is found and experienced fully in each person of the Trinity. When one person of the Trinity acts, then all three persons act. So, when God the Spirit acts in the world, we experience the work of all three persons. When God the Son came to redeem, that was the action of all three persons. To experience one person of the Trinity is to experience all three persons of the Trinity. So we know the nature of God the Father and the Spirit through the life of Jesus the Son. And we know about the nature of God the Father and God the Son when we experience the work of God the Spirit. So, who's with me 100% so far? It's all very well. Somebody has well done. The reality is probably not many of you. In fact, trying to understand the Trinity is a little bit like trying to hold water in your hands. It's pretty difficult, if not impossible. And that's the problem with the doctrine of the Trinity. It would be a lot easier if it was simpler. And a lot of people have tried to make it simpler down the centuries. They've tried to make it more understandable. But, as one of the authors that I've been reading lately suggested, every heresy about the Trinity happens when somebody tries to make it simpler and more understandable. And one of the problems with trying to make it more understandable is we forget about the gift of the Trinity. And the gift is... That it is not understandable. In the end, just when we think we've got it all together, it starts to fray at the edges. And that reminds us that in the end, God is not understandable. That God is mystery. And it also reminds us that God is multifaceted. God is more than God the Father. And God is more than God the Son, and God is more than God the Spirit. We cannot reduce God down to the work of one person. And it reminds us that the doctrine of the Trinity is incomplete. It is the best we can do from the evidence we have in Scripture and from our own experience of God at work in our lives. But in the end, it is not the whole story. It is a mystery. 
And in this doctrine, we are trying to describe something that is, in the end, indescribable. Now, while these huge debates were going on during the 300s, one group of uh, theologians were the Cappadocian Fathers, Basil the Great, his brother Gregory, and his friend Gregory. And they came out of this kind of country area called Cappadocia, which nothing was supposed to come out of. And yet these three massive thinkers that have shaped so much of the church's theology emerged. And one of the phrases they liked to use was Lex Arandi, Lex Credendi, Lex Vivendi. Actually, that's probably a Latin translation because I'm pretty sure they wrote in Greek. Which means, as we worship, so we believe, and so we live. As we worship, so we believe, and so we live. We often think that our belief comes first and everything else comes afterwards, but they realised that worship was at the heart of who we are as Christians. And it was worship that shaped what we believe. And actually that's what we as Anglicans have followed, which is why we place our liturgy at the centre of our lives. Our liturgy shapes what we believe and how we live. So for the early church fathers, and I guess the mothers, but I don't know a lot about them, and not a lot gets written about them, how we worship shapes what we believe what we believe about God, what we believe about God's world, what we believe about ourselves. And what we believe shapes, in some way, how we live our lives. And so these early church fathers put a lot of store on the interplay between theology and worship. And Basil the Great wrote one of the great early liturgies, which we will use a little bit of later on, which is still used by the Orthodox Church today, and is used on high Sundays within the Catholic tradition. So why did they put such a store on liturgy? Well, if our worship is to a God who is a judge sitting in heaven, a judge who, judging who gets to heaven and who goes to hell, a God who is angry with the sin of the world, we will, we will come to believe that that is the nature of God. And, we will, and our lives will be lived in fear, trying to appease that God and to earn our way into heaven. And, or, we try to become agents of God, God's righteous anger, venting that anger on all we deem to be beyond God's compassion. And over the centuries, that has included Jews and Muslims, and today we can include homosexuals and all of that, and various other groups as well. But if my worship is to a God who is passionate about this world and those who live in it, so passionate that God the Son came among us as one of us, as a sign of God's passion and commitment, who died to release us from all that binds us and blinds us, all that prevents us from living with the same compassion and commitment to all of creation, then I will come to trust in that God and grow in loyalty to that God which is what belief really means. And with the help of God, the Spirit will seek to live as one who is filled with God's passion for this world and those who live in it. 
we will become people who seek to join with God in God's ongoing work of bringing life and redemption to all creation. As we worship, so we believe, and so we live. So our belief about the Trinity shapes our worship. And so we have to pay attention to who is the Trinity and how that shapes our worship. How that will shape what we believe about God and how it is shaping how we live our lives. Now one of the problems with the Trinity is that we can get hung up on the mechanics of the Trinity. And the mechanics are important, but they are not the point. Rublev's icon of the Trinity, which is uh, up there, I think is a, a wonderful expression both of the mechanics, but also the point. And the point of the Trinity is the relationship that exists between the persons of the Trinity. If we look at that, we can see the mutuality, the respect, the love that lies at the heart of the Trinity, that exists between the three persons of the Trinity. The relationship is what is important. That is the point. When we get hung up on the mechanics, we miss that at the heart of the triune God is a profound relationship of mutuality, care, respect, loyalty, generosity, and as somebody I read last night reminded me, joy. Joy. And we miss that the Son came out of that relationship, offering that same mutuality, care, respect, loyalty, generosity, and joy to all creation. And that through the Son, Jesus, we are invited into that relationship. Into that relationship of mutuality, respect, care, loyalty, generosity, joy. Through the ascension, we are drawn into the heart of that relationship. And we might describe that relationship as one as love. Now, it's really important when it comes to describing what happens in worship. We've kind of got to the point in our modern understanding of worship that we gather and then we invite God to join us. And there are lots of choruses that say, welcome God, come and join us in this act. But actually, in worship, when we enter this place as the people of God, we are invited by the Trinity. And we are invited into the heart of the Trinity to experience in this world the love and joy that exists in the heart of the Trinity. So that we might become people shaped by that love and joy and live that out in our daily lives. People marked by love and joy. This is not our activity here. We join God. And that's why, for the Orthodox tradition, they call the liturgy the Divine Liturgy because they didn't write it. God wrote it. And through entering into that liturgy, they enter into the life of the Trinity. We've kind of lost that. 
We see our liturgy as a nice resource that we can use when we organise worship. I have to say that I thought that for a long time myself. It took me a while to get that actually this is not my activity. This is God at work. I'm invited to join in. That doesn't mean I can't be creative, but I always have to hold that actually the initiative lies with God. When we gather every Sunday, when we gather in this place, we gather in the heart of God, the heart of the Trinity. And we are embraced by that same relationship which exists within the heart of the Trinity. It was out of an experience of that that St. Augustine of Hippo described the Trinity as God is lover, God is the beloved, God is the love between. God the lover, God the beloved, God the love between. And we are invited into the heart of that love, into the heart of the mystery that is the Trinity. And we are invited to be shaped by that mystery. So how has your worship over the years shaped what you believe about the Trinity? How have you lived it out? And as we are invited into the heart of God who is the lover, the beloved, and the love between, what is it like to be invited into the heart of mystery today? Let us pray. In this new season, may we know the presence of the God who dwells within our days, the mystery of Christ who drenches us in love, and the blessing of the Spirit who bears us into life anew. Amen.